0: Hi, welcome to the PMP exam radio show with your friend Phil.
1: To prepare you for the renowned PMP exam as we discuss all things project management.
0: An exciting, refreshing take on the PMBOK guide and the world of project management pragmatism. And now, here is your friend, Phil. all right my friend it's the chill out and we've got a special guest we've got Jonathan who was on the journey with us and he's now a boss how does Mm -hmm. it feel Jonathan tell us again let it let it drum into our head so we can do what you did
2: it feels relieving after about three or four months of uh, pretty intense studying and you know I don't have a lot of free time so I felt like pretty much it was just my work you know having a new baby and now um, uh, being PMP certified is just really exciting. Um, it's relieving to be honest. Um, but I'm just excited to share a little bit more of what, you know, what I went through and, and Thank you. The lessons learned. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming. So let's just start talking about why PMP
0: was it a must in your company? Did they say you have to do it? What, what informed your decision to go ahead?
2: I've actually always wanted to get my PMP, uh, just for my own personal career, um, and I I got my CAPM when I was in college. I really like projects. Um, CAPM is Certified Associate in Project Management, so it's kind Uh of intro PMP without um, any education requirements, or not uh, without any uh, experience requirements. Um, So now that I've been doing project management for three years, and I've always had it on my horizons, and my current company actually provided a a PMP course um, to really get the flow, and then I, I took the Crazy on a course to really get the um, the people process uh, type of things and yeah. the mindset really. So people both those people. things, all those things together, really gave me a more holistic view of the of the PMP. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. So tell us the CAPM.
0: How did that give you some leverage? Did it give you some leverage?
2: Um, it, ca- it just got me familiar with the wording. I took it in 2018. So it's about four years old. Um, so I was really able to understand the ITTOs. Um, but in regards to the PMP mindset and the PMI mindset and all that stuff, it was, it did not prepare me um, adequately mm. enough for that, for that type of thing. So that's why I was glad to take a couple courses to get refreshed. Um, if I just took my PMP Right after uh, you know, knowing I passed my CAPM, I don't think I'll be as confident in, mm-hmm. in addressing a lot of uh, situational questions on the exam. Mm-hmm. It's really good to talk to someone who's
0: done the CAPM because I don't get a whole lot of folks who do the CAPM and have the courage to muscle up and do PMP. So tell us the world of CAPM with all the ITTOs that you need to know versus PMP world. What would you say to someone who is a CAPM and wants to go for PMP? Any advice about how you would tackle the ITTOs or not?
2: Definitely. Um I took my CAPM on a like an online tech course with no uh, interaction really. Um it was just kind of like watch the course, take notes and then um take the exam. And I felt like that was a a pretty reliable way, but PMP is a whole different animal. You can't just watch videos <laughs> and then expect to know exactly what to do. I, having an, uh, it wasn't in person, but it was online format, like via zoom type of thing. And, um, that was through my company. And so we really went in deep on a lot of the process and a lot of, uh, you know, the knowledge and stuff like that, and being able to understand the flow. And then I went and, uh, needed more agile, needed mm. to beef up my agile, I didn't have, there wasn't much Agile, to be honest, on CAPM four years ago. There was, there was a couple Agile, you know, maybe 10 20%. Um, but the PMP really emphasizes at least hybrid, so you have to know both. Um, mm. And I feel like I wouldn't feel as confident um, taking a PMP uh, exam if I just took the um, CAPM and, and used that knowledge because I feel like I would question a lot of my answers with uh, Agile-type verbiage um, and a lot of the answers are very similar to each other. And you just kind of know mm. um, what is in and what is out type of thing on the verbiage. Mm. So I definitely would say it was very helpful to to have a more rounded um, approach to that, for sure. Gotcha.
0: So how much is too much, Jonathan? Because a lot of folks, <clears throat> they still try to cram and memorize all the ITTOs. What would you say to people who are obsessing over formulas and ITTOs? How much is too much and where's the balance? Where's the sweet spot? Uh,
2: If you're obsessing over them, it's probably you're taking too much time, to be honest. Um, For my CAPM, I definitely obsessed over all that stuff. And I did the, you know, the cheat sheet and I like scribbled a bunch of crap down to make sure I remembered everything. But the PMP exam is nothing like that. You don't need to know all the, form- I mean, you should know what the formulas mean, the definitional and, you know, what's above, what's below, all that stuff. But if they're going to ask you, like, you know, total up all these things and make an estimated budget, they're not going to do any of that. Mm. Um, so I would say understand the general flow. Um, definitely know what comes before, what comes after. If someone can say, you know, is this before or after this thing? Okay. definitely uh work on those things um and i did i definitely uh i felt like i hit it over holistically a lot i'd ever just like focus in on one thing okay. and um try to memorize it i was just like okay you always you know estimate and then you analyze and then you you know what i mean like the general uh flow of how data you can know, data becomes information becomes you know you like you and then it becomes reports, right? And so there's like definitely a flow. I mean you have to know what that flow is. But if you're if you're trying to um get really in the in the weeds and in the details of definitions, I think you're kind of going down a dark alley and it's not really gonna there's not a lot of value. It's not gonna end well. <laughs> it's not a lot of value. You're 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 focusing on maybe a one percent. Mm. And it's, you can be really, I mean, you know, in the 80-20 rule, right? Mm. And you can really focus on the meat of the PMP, which is a lot of um, mindset stuff. And it will definitely address most of those questions for sure. Mm.
0: So, you know, Jonathan, when we did our immersion, we talked about the mantra, the mindset
2: mantras, and I went through all 36 of them. Was that of any help? Definitely, definitely a very big help. And, and, um, you know, when I was first looking into... um, Doing the PMP, I didn't think that was going to be very big, to be honest. Um, but once I I saw a bunch of situational questions, and I'm like, how do I, you know, what do you base it off of, right? Do you base it off personal experience? Do you base it off of PMI? And but if you don't know what PMI's kind of pillars are, or just general, you know, like you never really ask your manager mm. this a a jet or general. You should be able to buck stops with you right you stop you just stop passing the buck with you and stuff like that like some some situations in your your the company you work for maybe that is a appropriate response but going over the mindset and the mantras and especially agile and like you know customer over Mm. a customer collaboration right it's very important so um definitely go over those things and um not really memorize to be honest i wouldn't memorize but i would just Whenever Phil says it in the podcast, repeat it out loud type of thing. That's what I did. Um, and it was definitely really helpful to be like, oh, yeah, this is, this is not falling in that. Mm, that's, that's really great stuff to know. And I want to encourage our friends to
0: keep the chats going. Don't be all quiet. Uh, they got some congrats in the chat, uh, Jonathan, if you're taking a look. Good, good, good. And um, I also want to ask some standard, you know, questions that people normally have at the end of this exam. People normally wanna know, okay, was agile difficult? Yes, it was prominent, but was it difficult in your opinion?
2: If you can take the practice exam uh, that Phil has, that's probably the most difficult. (laughs) It's more difficult than the PMP and in terms of agile, at least. Um, I felt like it wasn't very difficult. You just have to be familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of um, PMs that I talk with um, that took just my company-provided course, they just were not familiar with the agile terms and how that flows. And, um, and it, it seemed very uh, surface level, but if you don't know, you don't know. And it, You're right. Really yeah.
0: Absolutely. Let's take a look at a few of the slide questions that I've prepared. And content just to go through. So you've told us why PMP. We know what you did leading up to it. We know you had a CAPM. Um, how did you
2: study, Jonathan? How many hours in a day were you putting in? Um, I probably studied over 100 hours, maybe 120 hours total over the course of about three or four months. So that totals to about, you know, some days it's two hours, some days it's four hours, some days it's one hour. Um, gotcha. On average, I would say around two hours over the course of the day it wasn't I don't have time especially with a new baby to mm-hmm. sit down for two dedicated hours <laughs> but you know 30 minutes in the morning 30 minutes on my lunch break and one hour at night type of thing wow my general plan yeah I duff my hat to you with a newborn you
0: <laughs> see, so I got certified before I had kids so I cannot imagine how hard it must have been to to have to wake up at night and do stuff and you know so I doff my hat to you What about the night before the exam and a week before the exam? Do you remember any particular things or habits you would advise?
2: It's funny that you say this, because I I think if you don't, if you're not ready the night before the exam, you're not ready. It's not Mm -hmm. like the last, the night's going to (laughs) really prepare you. So I actually scheduled my studying to end three days before the exam. Wow. So I didn't actually study the last, the last two days I did review, just from keeping my mind, keeping the mindset the last day, maybe 15 minutes, but I really didn't study. Um, and so as a result, I think I was refreshed in the morning. Mm. One wow. That's smart. That's a good tip. Good tip.
0: So how did you master these sections? I think you've already given us the clue. You came in for the <clears throat> immersion, and you were really in the zone. You were really in the moment. That's one thing I love about your attendance. You were right there following everything that was said. You were 100%. You turn on the camera. And you know, I, I, just, I just loved that. So when the time was coming up to you getting into the exam, I'm like, Jonathan's got this. I'm not going to worry about him. I'm not going to worry about him. He's got it. So I, I stopped worrying. And you know, the rest is history. But let's talk about what else you did? So I know you came for the immersion, you had the content. How did you really like firm up in people, process, business, agile, hybrid, predictive?
2: That's a great question. Um, I think every day you have to do something for PMP. Mm. Um, you can't really have a day where you don't study, even if it's just listening to a video, even if it's just, um, you know, doing a practice exam. I remember in one of your videos, I don't know which one it was, but it was talking about like, basically like a meal, right. You (laughs) For breakfast, you do something for lunch, you do something for dinner. So I followed that, you know, every morning I did a a little practice exam. I had a, like a PMP uh, question of the day app. Mm. I would just go through and it was super, it was five minutes, right. And you'd read through why and what you got wrong and all that. And then at lunchtime, I'd listen to one of your podcasts and just have Mm -hmm. some time going to walk with my baby and just listen and maybe watch a video here or there. Um, And then at dinner, I had actually had an exam booklet and I just would, I read through 500 pages of that booklet, wow. underlined all the stuff. And I think just, you know, like every day, it's like, you know, when I, and I don't have a lot of time, I feel like it was just the only thing I did. Wow. <laughs> I, I cut all social media, I cut all TV, I cut all video games. I cut everything. I said, I'm not going to do it until I pass. So even wow. if I take it, I don't pass. Then, you know, so I had, I was really motivated, especially after three months of like, <laughs> nothing um no entertainment wow. um you know i just it was just cool. great pmp wow and my, my wife would be like yeah I, I got a couple of that conflict resolution stuff <laughs> and i would go through you know like what did i learn that could be applied to real life and so wow like well, it really connects it right i love it and uh you know talking about like opportunities and threats and easy and a team all that stuff like once you once you apply it in real life on the exam it's like oh yeah you know I love it yeah. I love
0: it that's what I'm talking about come on my friends start your questions put questions in the chat so that our buddy Jonathan you know he's he's a PMP now he ain't got time to like hang around so you better put the questions in before he goes on his next big deal so Jonathan let's take a look at this one more time the exam starts right yeah and you begin looking at questions is it hard to say this question is just purely people or purely process, or purely business, or was it very clear when things were just purely process, or did they just mash it all up, and it's hard to tell? It was all mashed up,
2: oh, Lord. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the hardest exam I've ever taken, and I thought I failed, and I got above target in all areas. Wow. I, I honestly, I felt like I was confident, and maybe five percent. I was like, oh, that's definitely this answer. I felt like I did what your method, you, you eliminate, eliminate, and you're down to two, and I was like, I <laughs> this way and it was like the whole exam and I was just oh my gosh yeah. wow
0: yeah. wow that's just wild so let's say you get in you went into a test center right yes sir and you sit down and then up comes question one and how do you feel as you see question one of course we're not going into details we're sworn to secrecy but yeah. how do you feel when you see question one
2: I I thought I was in over my head. (laughs) Oh my God. I was like, I did all this studying and I'm going to come back and my my wife's going to be like, you failed (laughs) and, you you know, like all these things. Oh my
0: gosh. So, was there a breaking point when that stopped and you began feeling, you know what? I think I got this. Last 30 questions. Are you kidding? Wow. Wow. So, one just has to stare at it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh Go ahead. Is it fair to say that they front-loaded the difficulty? Do you feel they did?
2: Definitely. And you told me, you, you, you advised, you, by the way, they're going to be front-loading the difficulty. And I felt like there were some gotcha, like easy questions the last 30, but there was none the first 60. And I felt like, oh my gosh. It <laughs> felt it felt like a like weight on my uh, confidence for sure. You know, oh, I was wow. going in, I was all confident. And then I was like, I, do I know this? I don't know. Wow. Wow. So how would you
0: advise that someone <clears throat> who feels like you did, how would you advise them to navigate that part of being in the valley of, I don't know where I
2: am? Um, I would say take it slow. Um, I, I I always tell myself, the your first answer is probably your best answer. So don't really rely on, oh, I'm going to go back, I'm going to go back, I'm going to go back, because you're just not, you know, you're going to get to a point where you're, when you go back, you're going to be more tired than when you first read it. So I, I just try to like do one at a time and just take it on one at a time. And I did um, in my company, we call it energy management instead of time management. Mm. Well, I did write down the time, you know, I should have, you know, the first 60 by this time, take a break. And I wrote that down so I have a baseline, but the first 30, I was, I was completely wiped. Um, and It was actually really early in the morning, 8am in the the town that was 45 minutes away. And I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, the night before with the baby and all that stuff. So I was like, really (laughs) running low on that first 30. And they and I decided I'm going to take an unscheduled break and just do because I was already ahead on the I was I took questions a little quicker in the beginning. Mm. I noticed I was trending ahead on my my schedule. And I was like, I need to take a break or I'm just I'm burning myself out.
0: Wow. Unscheduled break. It's a long time I heard anyone say that word. So Nick. for those who don't know, it means this is eaten into your time, right? Mm-hmm. It's not being given to you like the customary two breaks you get. This yeah. is you just saying, I need to tap out. That, and that's a boss move. You see what I'm saying? I like it when you got control and dominance over the exam to say, you know what?
2: I stop the time. You don't control me. I control. You. Yeah. Because I was like, these next 30 questions are probably all wrong if I'm so tired. So I, I brought a lot of snacks. Snacks really get me going. Ah. My wife got, you know, got me snacks. And so I actually got stepped out. I you know gave myself 10 minutes and I said, I'm going to go to the bathroom, get a lot of water, get a lot of snacks and just like really just break and mm. then come back and hit it hard. So I, you know, and then when I came back, I felt like, okay, now I have the energy. I did 30 more questions. Then I took a scheduled break. Ah. And then I did the last 60, 60. And I actually ended there a little early, like 20 minutes. Wow.
0: Away. Yeah. Wow. That is a brilliant, brilliant lessons learned to take an unscheduled break. And it's a boss move. And it, I think it actually, personally, I think it would calm you down to know, yeah, I can do this. Yeah. You know, and
2: When I was looking at my schedule, I'm like, I'm 10 minutes ahead. And I'm like, I'm so tired. And I'm just, I'm just dragging my feet wow. question after question. And, um, wow. you know, they, I just, I had to, I had to take some time to really get my brain back on track. Um, and I think that really definitely helped, um, in the long run, because I felt like I was able to manage my energy throughout the whole I was a four hour exam, right?
0: Yeah. You were, you
2: know, 30 minutes in, I'm like, I'm not going to make it unless I take some time to huh. really break. So, wow.
0: Thanks for sharing that lesson learned we got a question in from one of our friends, Sumi. Sumi's asking, was a difficulty or ease of elimination similar to praising on quizzes? So in the beginning, Sumi, if I heard Jonathan correctly, what did you say in the beginning, Jonathan?
2: Um, I felt like it was easy to eliminate one. The second one was similar. You know, if you think it through it and then you really get down to two and, um, i felt like the praise on quizzes were very similar in regards to elimination um you could definitely um eliminate one for sure and then you're down to three and then if you you know have the vocabulary and you have the process flow and you have all that stuff okay eliminate number two and then you're between these two and you're looking at okay what's the best answer or what's the first thing the pm should do or what's the next thing they should do and between those two things i thought okay I I got this now. You're on mute. Great
0: question, Sumi. You're on mute. You want to unmute? Say something? Seems like you're enjoying the outdoors. Yeah,
1: there you go. Yeah, here I am. (laughs) Yep, yep. Thank you so much. Yeah. That is is just, uh, I don't know. That's a lot of great information, Jonathan. Thanks for sharing that. Um, And then, you know, another quick question is, you know, of course, Phil has. You know, he he always says this. He has a ton of material. Huh. So, if um, for you know, all of us have only so much time, we are all pressed for time. What would your advice be, Jonathan, to kind of hit on the top, say top five things from the on curriculum mm. uh, on a daily basis? Say, if I gave myself 60 days. 60. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's, that's a fair question, but. Um.
2: Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I would say uh, if you don't know anything,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, I didn't, I go through Phil's course, the, the full course, because I already took another course. Um, mm-hmm. But I went through all of his like YouTube and, and videos like that as Spotify playlist. And I would say, you know, if you don't know anything, definitely go through the whole thing. Um, but if you already have a good baseline knowledge, then just look up the stuff that you really feel like you're lacking. In. You know, I, I didn't feel confident in the procurement section. So I looked and he has a six minute video on procurement. So I, I followed up on that. And then um, I didn't feel really confident in agile because my, my, my course didn't, you know, or the book that I was doing, didn't really go through agile. So I, I watched every agile or <laughs> every podcast on agile, cause that's what I, I needed help on. Um, and then I also didn't, wasn't really confident in the man, mindset because a lot of the, the study book was mostly process-based. So then I went through the mindset, but so, you know, it depends on if you're starting from ground zero, then definitely if he has, you know, he has a whole course. I, I started watching it. And I'm like, okay, I know this stuff already. I don't need to, yeah. you know, be, I don't need to waste my time and go doing all the whole thing again. But if you haven't done that, definitely watch everything. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, focus in and and take a lot of notes, you know, or or write, or write it down. Like what, you know, if if someone says, okay, stakeholder, like what's in that chapter, if you don't feel confident, anything, talking to the customer, you know, any of that stuff, then maybe that's what you focus on. But if you you say someone says cost, you know, Oh, I know EV, I know SP, I know ICP, maybe you don't need to focus on that. Um, so I would say definitely, you know, just go, you know, chapter by chapter and be like, you know, what am I lacking? What do I not feel confident in? And um, a lot of Phil's um, stuff is really focusing on that mindset and it builds that confidence. Okay. I know, you know, A and Z and, you know, I I know all these steps. And then Phil really shows, okay, this is the story of all that and the flow. And then you're, okay, now I can fill in those gaps where I felt like on my book, it wasn't as clear or, you know, in whatever. Um, Definitely. Absolutely. Thank you. And we had this one. Jonathan also had the immersion
0: book. If he wanted to refer to anything, he had that in his back pocket. And then, like he's saying, he had the 35 tasks videos in the learning system if he wanted to go through them. And I might add, Jonathan sucked that mock exam in the jaw twice. So yeah, definitely taking taking the mock exam.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, taking that 180 question mock exam. And I'm, I mean, he, he got a very, very high score, you know, in the 90s. So a lot of people, they tap out on the mock exam, said, oh, well, I passed it. So that, no, you got to take it until you get in the 90s. That's my recommendation. So yeah. when I saw that, I, I said, I can have a good night's
2: sleep. Jonathan's going gonna, gonna <laughs> to, and he did. So, And wow. I went through every question I went wrong. And I wrote mm-hmm. down why I got it wrong wow. the first time. And I just, wow. you know, when you go through the second time, it, it, it's definitely easier because it's the same questions, but still you hard. Mindset again, you, you know, I still miss questions because you, you have to go through, you have to remember and you, you know, it just, it solidifies. And when you see that high score, you're Okay, you know, I feel confident going to my PMP. Um, so definitely, yeah. Exactly. Good stuff, Jonathan. Thank you, Sumi, for the question. We've got Thank another you.
0: question from our friend Cece. And that question is, were there any topics that were new Uh, that you didn't study for Mm. did you feel that there were any like wow where's this from never heard this one before like I mean totally weird or outlandish topic did you get anything like that without Um, going into the specifics just yeah that's a
2: good I'm
1: I'm really thinking because I'm trying Honestly,
2: after, you know, reading a 500 page study book, and (laughs) and going through all the field stuff and doing practice stuff, I felt like I knew the knowledge, Mm -hmm. right. But applying it in the Mm -hmm. questions, those were really threw me off. Um, And they were, I don't know, I felt like they were throwing a lot of curveballs or just a lot of like, tweaks in there. And Mm -hmm. so I felt like, you know, if, if you know, if you do your due diligence, if you go through and you go through each chapter and you go through each one of Phil's videos and you take notes and, you know, like, I felt like the knowledge was the easiest part. If, they, if someone asked me a definitional question, I got that,
1: mm. but it
2: wasn't definitional questions. And so that's where the mindset and the PMI mindset really comes in. And I felt like if I were to do it again, I would probably focus more on that. But I, like right before the exam, I was really focusing on that and it definitely showed so. Gotcha.
0: Good. All right, CeCe, Thanks for that question. Come on now, keep the questions coming. Stop being all shy and cute. Put those questions in the chat. You know, all those things you were like, oh, I wonder if ask a PMP boss who's going to help you. So, Jonathan, let's uh, fast forward in the journey. So you come back in reinvigorated. You go into round two after you're now uh, given break by the PMI, and this is your next uh, what question sixty one to one twenty. So mm-hmm.
2: how does it feel in, in that one? Um, I felt a lot better, you know, had some more food and, and, and fueled up. And I did a lot of stretching and, like you know, mm. power posing confidence. And <laughs> Nice. Question 61. Arms and Kimbo back down again. PMI Superman. is like, bam. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> but then you just, you know, you got to calm down, right? Stay within the question, really focus, mm. eliminate. And you just do one at a time, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very much like a fast test ticker, you know, easy, mm. I finish early. Mm-hmm. So slowing myself down, you know, I try to only read the question once or twice, maybe three times max. Cause once you're doing it too many times, you're just, you're spinning your wheel. So I really like, I slowed myself down. I was like, I'm going to read this question like once, mm-hmm. maybe twice if I need to read, mm. answer, you know? And so I would definitely, um, Say the second half was the the first half was the hardest. Second half was next hardest. And then Mm. the last half was definitely the easiest. Okay. Um, But, you know, I feel like you're kind of getting warmed up. You kind of remembering all these things. And um, it, it definitely was a lot easier than the first half for sure. Gotcha. So someone says formulas.
0: I am going to cram every formula on page 267 under earned value.
2: What would you say to those? It. <laughs> I had one EV question and it was wow. super easy. Wow. Wow. It, was, wow. it was something along the lines of, you know, if this is your SPI and this is your CPI, what's the project? Is it over yeah. budget, under budget, over, you know, over schedule, under schedule? But, you know, memorizing all the estimated and all that, I would say it's not. And even if you get that question wrong, it's only one question, right? Mm. In comparison to so many questions that are, very much more broader knowledge base. Right, um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say to people who um, have this book
0: or may not have this book and uh, are contemplating whether to read it? Is it a good idea to
2: read it? Um, I. That's a hard question for me to answer because I never actually read the <laughs> Agile practice guide.
0: <laughs> you got a lot of Agile from my immersion training nice. and discussions and I'm really glad that you tuned into the podcast. So let's talk about that for a quick second. So you found the whole podcast, not on YouTube, like a lot of people do, but you found it on Spotify, right?
2: Yeah. Why well, I, I I was seeking some type of PMP, anything to listen to when I was on a boring day at work or when I was on my walk. I was just like, I just need to listen to something, you know, because I'm doing a lot of writing I'm doing a lot of note-taking i'm watching some videos but not really because i was you know i i banned youtube right so i banned all my video games <laughs> so i was like i can't i can't do youtube um, wow and on wow. spotify some of your videos actually are on there i didn't even know spotify could do videos so that's kind of cool that's was it. a little bit of a loophole for me i was like well i'm not you know i'm not watching like videos for fun i'm watching it for studying ah. um but I think being able to um, for the agile portion, if if you feel lacking in it, the immersion course was that's why I took that because I I didn't have enough time to read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my experience, you know. But I think if even if you read the book, I think you would have a lot of value in that. Um, but you know, there's not a lot of definitional questions on the PMP. Wow, that's good to of, know. A lot of you know you have to understand the definition to get to the next part. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you don't need a definition. You need to know the definition. You need to know the agile manifesto. And then you also need to know this situation in particular. Um, and then a lot of it's like hybrid, you know, it's like this is a agile project with predictive elements. It's a predictive mm. project with agile elements. And wow. Now your brain is really racking on, <laughs> you know, wow. different knowledge areas and you're trying to pull it all together. Um, so reading the book, I read a whole uh, predictive book, um, the read a book, and that was definitely helpful, but I don't feel like um, it added as much value as being able to understand, you know, with the one-on-one, not one-on-one, but the emergent training and all that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it took yeah. that knowledge and it made it real, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, so I, I would say, you know, it, it, you don't, I don't think you can go wrong by reading it. Um, and I think you get some, I mean, I'm like, I'm confident. Like I, I read this 500 page book and I have a note <laughs> on every single page in some regard, you know, highlight, underline. So if you do that same thing with the address, that's pretty thin. Mm. Um, I think there'll be a lot of confidence. Absolutely. But well,
0: Jonathan, I am so grateful for you coming to share your lesson learned. And I'm hoping that we are going to be able to motivate, inspire and encourage other people who say, I can't do it. It's insurmountable, <clears throat> new baby on board, and all these other excuses. I'm hoping that yeah. people will get inspired just hearing what you had to say. And then we also got a question from Sumi, another question. And this says, is there adequate time to go back to a question? What would you say about that?
2: I marked three questions or so per section, so per 60 and I just kind of kept the same answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I re- I think I changed one, maybe two answers total Smart. out of the nine or so, but your best answer is your first answer. And you know, when you, when you take the, it's how I learned that is when I took the practice exam and I changed like 10 answers and I got 80% <laughs> of them wrong <laughs> from what I changed it from. Oh, so I was wow. like, my, <laughs> it's not really helping me changing the answer, you know? And so I would, I marked three and I I literally just skimmed it. I was like, honestly, I don't really know. I'm just going to keep it. Or that's probably the right answer. You know, this is my best stab at it. Um, I I changed maybe one or two. Wow.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And I know you've actually already told a number of individuals about us. If they are watching the podcast and they're going to hear your lesson learned, and hopefully that will inspire them to go ahead, charge the exam and
2: get it done any final thoughts before we hop off um my number one recommendation for motivation would be to schedule your exam Mm -hmm. um you know as a as a pm you know you you do your schedule right you you schedule it out you do your day and you do your how many hours a day can you study and how many of this and and i did all that and i had it scheduled for july 15th or so and then I looked at my personal life calendar and I looked at some other stuff. I'm like, I can't do it that late. I have weddings and I have all this stuff. And it's, and I was like, honestly, I don't think I'll be motivated into July. <laughs> I've been setting this since May. So I just said, it's going to be end of June. It's time end of June. And once you, once you schedule it all of a sudden, I'm like, I need to get my butt in gear and you find the time. It, it, you know, it's not really about time, it's about priority. And mm. so you cut out things that aren't in priority and you say, you know, if this is, the one thing, you know, it's, you know, you, once you pass, you pass, right. It's not like you have to start take it again or anything. So, yeah. you know, I, I dedicated that time and my, you know, I talked with my wife and we had people helping with the baby and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, if, whatever your life circumstances there's always going to be an excuse There's always going to be, mm. I'm going to do it another day. I'm going to do another time. And, you know, when you nail down a date and you say, I'm not budging it, all of a sudden, it doesn't really, the decision to do it is now gone. And now it's just like, mm. just to go forward. Um, and I find that, and in, 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 in even in life, you know, when you, when you finally make that decision, it's like, it frees you, it frees that mm. bandwidth of when, when, when am I ready? Can I do it? You know, all this stuff. And it's just like, I'm going to do it. There you go. And I'm going <laughs> to jump in and I'm going to, you know, it's, I'm never going to be all the way ready. And that's what I felt like when I was taking the exam, like, I'm never going to be like, I can watch all of Bill's videos and I can watch all of my company videos and I can do all this. But at, at one point, at some point there's a decline, right. You know, mm. And, um, you gotta, you know, you know yourself really. And, um, I think a lot of people, uh, myself included like all through May, and I, I was just like, well, you know, it's not a good time. It's not a good time. And you just got to make it a time, you know? And, wow. Um, I feel like uh, you know projects feel the time you give it, and PMP is a project. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. And when you prepare, um, when you plan it all out, and you look at like I, I did a bottom up estimate, right? You, you look at all your days and you estimate the amount of time, and you look at all the things you got to do, and then I bottom up, and it was like, okay, you know, it's July fifteenth, and I looked at that, and I was like no, I don't want to do it then. And I just <laughs> did a top down estimate. I said, I'm just going to do it this and I'm going to wow. make it work. And it was funny because I didn't have Phil in any of that planning. But when I started, when I started really like learning, leaning into, it, I was like, well, now I need to do a podcast. And so I, that's ah. how I found Phil. And then that's how I found, you know, you, I didn't, honestly, if you look at my schedule versus my actual, it's completely different, but wow. I think, um, you kind of, you, you start to realize your areas, areas of weakness and you start to just focusing on those things mm. and you start focusing on like, you know, you're not just building a foundation, but you're really like attacking specific areas. Um, like I didn't know like the opportunities and risk stuff as well. And then you made it very clear with the A team and easy. And so, um, yeah, that would be definitely one of my top things, set an exam date. Um, uh, take it in person if you can. Um, I know Phil says that a lot, um, but I took my cap M online because it's a two hour exam, a lot easier, but I know I need to go to the bathroom. I need to eat. I need to do all these things. And, um, I've heard a lot of horror stories of, you know, like it just doesn't work out (laughs) and then you got to take it again. And then I didn't have the, the time to take, and I don't think anyone has the time to take a four hour exam twice. Mm -hmm. You're going to be. Failed based off technical issues not based Mm. off the merit you know and so i was you know i it was actually a six hour long time commitment for me because it's an hour drive and an hour drive back Um, Mm. but for me it was worth the hour drive to be able to take it one time yeah and you you have that in your mindset you know it's like this is is my this is my shot right here Mm. and so i'm gonna do my best and um so yeah taking it um Setting a date, taking it in person, and then the last thing would be um, talk to people that you know, and really just like it doesn't have to be like you know contracts. I mean, unless that's what you're passionate about, um, but just talk about something with people. Oh, this is what I learned today on with PMI. This is what I learned um, from my buddy Phil. Says so, you know, and just it. I think when you externally process it, when you write it down in a notebook, and you know, I, I have. My family has like a notebook that we share and I put all of like um, conflict resolution stuff because I feel like that's important in every day. And I put like, you know, that the life cycle like diagram and I put the, uh, what's the one? The Shirley diagram or or whatever it was called. Um, Or Stacy the Stacy diagram. Stacy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't know what that was. I thought that was something (laughs) you made up and then I got it wrong on your practice exam. (laughs) I looked into it. Um, But all those things, you know, once you start, you know, writing, it's like it finalizes all that stuff. You just have it. Um, my, my other coach um, says you have a picture in your mind mm. and you can use that picture to really drive the questions instead of just knowing pieces and, and bits. So those will be my, my three big takeaways for sure.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan, for sharing that. I still can't get over the fact that you leveraged the opportunity of a, an unscheduled break. And you seized it and you didn't go in there with a view to doing that, did you? You didn't know you were going to do that. And that's what I call being in the moment. I I tell people be action ready, you know, because I use the acronym, be calm, cool, calm and collected, but I say action ready, ready to spring into action. If there's an opportunity or if something crazy happens and that's what you did, you're the real boss. So (laughs) I appreciate you coming in. Those of our friends listening on the PMP exam radio show, Jonathan is one of ours who found this curriculum by being on the radio show. So I hope this has encouraged you. Just some really profound lessons. I love the stuff about putting in a notebook, making it real, having a picture. You dropped so many bombs, gold nuggets that I'm hoping people will go back and harvest the treasure trove you dropped. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. (laughs) Cheers. Hello, my friends. It's your buddy Phil here. It's a reminder that I have coaching and training sessions one-on-one. If the PMP exam has been giving you a lot of trouble, now's the time for us to sit down one-on-one and get it down, Pat. You know the exam has so many moving parts. Agile, Scrum in particular, the PMBOK Guide, hybridization, so much stuff. A lot of times, people just need one or two sessions to get their head straight. Some people need more than one session. But for the most part, I've found one session to be so freeing and liberating for students. If that sounds like something you want to take advantage of, go on down to pmanonymous.com. That's pmanonymous.com. And we'll work together and get you in ship shape to knock this PMP exam out. Let's get into today's
2: show.
1: Welcome to the Project Management Audio Digest, a series of project management
2: audio teachings and instruction by project management author, trainer, and coach, Phil C. Akinwali. No part of this publication may be reproduced, transmitted, transcribed, stored in a retrieval system in any form or by any means without the written permission of Prasian Media, LLC.
1: And now let's join Phil in the Classroom to learn about Chapter 9 in the Pinball Guide, which is about Project Resource Management.
0: The process, Estimate Activity Resources, and its importance, can be underscored by reading up about the historic expedition to the South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Roald Amundsen did everything he needed to do by studying the Eskimos and studying what kind of resources, what type of resources, and how many resources, equipment, materials, supplies, food, what have you, that he would need along the journey. He had it all planned out, had it all mapped out, knew where the depots were meant to be, and knew how to strategically place his men meandering through the treacherous plains all the way to the South Pole. Now in contrast Robert Falcon Scott, the British naval officer, didn't do that good a job as planning out his resources and as the story goes, one team ended up reaching the South Pole before the other, Rod Amundsen's team, and up went the Norwegian flag And they successfully began their return journey. And that was that. But on the flip side, Robert Falcon Scott's men died one by one, including him. This boils down to inefficient resource planning. If you read the stories of both, you find out that one had impeccable planning, leveraging historical information, And lessons learned. The other took very bad steps. And that led to the demise of the team. And eventually they did get to the South Pole. But their journey back was horrendous. And they all died. Lack of food. Lack of water. Just horrible. Now when you read that story. How is it that two men. With a similar objective. Similar goal. Robert Falcon Scott definitely did not have a shortage of resources had he chosen the right resources and the right amount of resources. And certain steps that he took were just flat out bad if you read the story. One of the favorite laws in the book the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell, my mentor, is the law of navigation. And in the law of navigation, he breaks this story apart. And the law states that anyone can steer the ship, but it takes a leader to chart the course. Didn't we talk about management being maintaining systems and processes, but leadership is all about being innovative leadership actually charts the course managers steer the ship it's easy once it started to steer the ship but to chart the course is a tough job and charting the course for resources is pretty much what this process is all about being able to foresee the difficulties just like Roald Amundsen did versus Scott who did not getting Suitable machinery, equipment, is what Roald Amundsen did. But on the flip side, Falcon Scott employed ponies and the poor creatures had to be shot before the journey was over. As a result of this, his poor man had to be involved in hauling about food and samples. That should not have been. So, bringing it back to modern-day project management, it's the job of the project manager to count the cost resource-wise to know what the project entails so that, like Falcon Scott and his team, the project manager will not run out of gas, the project manager will not run out of transport resources, food resources, and ultimately the team will be able to get to dry land with the planned resources. So when you think of estimate activity resources, it's estimating the type, the quantity, and the nature of any of the resources needed on the project, be it human, equipment, material, supplies, or facilities. And the key goal of this is that it enables us identify those characteristics end-to-end of all of these resources so that we can effectively count the cost, look for cost trade-offs. If those particular resources are not available or cannot be achieved, this is where the PM should look for trade-offs. It is also in this process that we concentrate on the capacity for these resources. We should also think about the number of hours that these resources are needed. In other words, the effort, not the duration, but really the effort. How many hours a day will these resources be working? Now, this is different from how many weeks the endeavor is. For example, if I got a resource to work two hours a day for the next one month, the duration is a month. But the resource effort is the two hours over that period, let's say of 20 days, looking at a five-day work week times four. So 20 days working two hours every one of those days. This is different from a resource working eight hours a day over 20 days. So when we talk about resource effort, we're talking about the specific number of hours that these resources are working. When we talk about duration or activity duration, we're talking about how long that activity spans across. In this example, an activity span in a month. So these variables are important so that when you take a look at estimate activity duration, You will be able to distinguish between that and this, Estimate Activity Resources. Estimate Activity Resources offers an input to Estimate Activity Durations. The resource requirements become an input to Estimate Activity Durations. So let's talk about this process. How do we roll with the process? How do we get stuff done? Well, it starts off by having a plan, the Resource Management Plan. And part of the resource management plan is the how behind our identification of the resources and the ultimate estimate of how many and how much resources we need. It basically gives us a roadmap for how to carry out this process, estimate activity resources now bear in mind there is a tight connection between estimate activity resources and estimate cost for obvious reasons resources cost money if you have a team of people that do not have the skill set that you need for a particular piece of the work that is going to cost additional money and this is where trade-offs need to be met about who you hire because who you hire could determine how many effort hours you'll need from that resource. For example, highly skilled resource may take two hours to do a job. A less skilled resource may take ten hours to do the job. So here we need to consider trade-offs as well. And that's why in addition to the Resource Management Plan, we could also have the Scope Baseline as one of those sub-inputs to this process. The Scope Baseline contains the project and product scope, which gives an idea of what exactly these resources will need to do on the project. The scope drives the need, bear that in mind. Next input is project documents, and part of the project documents here are activity attributes and the activity list, remember we talked about these before. So activity attributes further describe the activity in question. Why do we need activities? Because the resources will be assigned when acquired to an activity, right? For that reason, the activity list is also relevant. We should also factor in any assumptions and constraints that are specific to resources, such as cost estimates and productivity factors. We should also consider the cost estimates. The cost of the resources, as I said previously, could impact resource selection as a result of quantity and skill level. Resource calendars should also be factored in here. A resource calendar identifies the working times for resources. So if a resource is only available within certain times, That could be an issue if the resource is not available to work on the project when the resource is really needed. Remember, as we're thinking about resources here, we're thinking about all manner of resources. Human, equipment, material, supplies. Also, risks should be considered. Any resource-related risks should be considered as an input here. Our next input, enterprise environmental factors could include the resource location, resource availability, team resource skills, organizational culture, published estimating data, and marketplace conditions. Our next input here is organizational process assets which could include policies and procedures relating to staffing, policies and procedures relating to supplies and equipment, and any historical information regarding the types of resources used in previous similar projects. Let's talk about our tools and techniques. Tools and techniques here, obviously expert judgment is one. You need this expertise from someone who has been there, done that, to consider when you are estimating activity resources. If you have people with specialized knowledge regarding physical resource planning and estimating, you could use that in this process. Bottom-up estimating is also another tool and technique used here, and in cases where it is hard to estimate resources at a high level, work could be decomposed to the activity level and then aggregated to develop the estimates for work packages, control accounts, and summary project levels, and the ultimate project level. The next tool and technique is analogous estimating. The key thing here is we're using historical information from a previous similar project as a basis for estimating a future project. It's very quick but it's not that accurate. The next tool and technique is parametric estimating. Parametric estimating draws on historical information but the key thing is It links this historical information to a statistical relationship or an algorithm. Linking historical information and other variables through an algorithm to calculate the quantities for these resources is what parametric estimating does. For example, in the Pembok guide, it reads on page 324, If an activity needs 4,000 hours of coding and it needs to finish in one year, it will require two people to code, each doing 2,000 hours a year. Now, those of you who are into IT, you know it doesn't always hold true that if you need 4,000 hours of coding done, then two coders will give you 2,000 each. But it is an example This technique could produce higher levels of accuracy, depending on how sophisticated that algorithm is. For example, you might want to factor in the learning curve for those individuals working on that particular task, because after a period of time, they could get better at it. And those three are the estimating approaches used in Estimate Activity Resources. Bottom-up, analogous, and parametric. Just remember BAP, there's no three-point estimating here. Our next technique is data analysis. Now this involves analyzing the various options for choosing resources on the project. And some of these alternatives could be the level of resource capability. Are we dealing with a highly skilled resource or not? What about machines? Are we dealing with a manual machine or is it automated? What about make or buy decisions? Build or rent decisions and so on. So in essence, it's all about these alternatives for choosing the best project resource within the defined constraints. The next one here is PMIS, Project Management Information System. It's a no-brainer. This is software that enables us effectively plan resources and there's so many ERP solutions out there these days. Next technique is meetings, the meeting of the minds with functional managers, functional heads, resources, whoever's in those meetings to better understand the level of effort needed, the skill level needed, the quantity needed, so that those resource managers or hiring managers can better understand the needs for the project and in these meetings we could have the PM, the sponsor, other team members and stakeholders as needed. Moving on to our outputs, the first output is resource requirements. Resource requirements identify the types and quantities of resources needed for each activity or work package, and these can be aggregated to determine the estimated resource for the work packages for the WBS branch or the project as a whole, it really depends on the level of estimating. But the bottom line is, regardless of your level of estimating, this process will provide the understanding of the resources needed. This, of course, has incorporated any assumptions that were made at the very beginning. And that's why, that's why your assumption log should be an input to this process to really take into account those assumptions and constraints. As these resource requirements are derived, the next step should be to think about providing documentation surrounding these resource requirements or these estimates. Now this is known as a BOE, a basis of estimates, we've seen it in other processes But here we're trying to hone in on the method used to develop this resource estimate, the resources that were used to develop the estimate, any constraints, any assumptions, the range of estimates, how reliable are these, what is the confidence level, and any documentation of identified risks revolving around these estimates. The next output is a breakdown structure. You've seen a few of these breakdown structures. Well, this one is known as the resource breakdown structure, and it's a breakdown structure, a hierarchical decomposition of resources by category and type. If you take a look in the PMBOK guide, when you're not in motion, if you're driving, don't do that. Don't bring out the PMBOK guide, just listen. Figure 9-7, it shows you a sample RBS, resource breakdown structure that is, Not to be confused with the other RBS, risk breakdown structure. Not to be confused with the other breakdown structure, OBS, organizational breakdown structure, or the work breakdown structure. I'm messing with you. I know you know it. Well, let's talk about the resource breakdown structure. So you can break down resources by personnel, material, equipment. You know, you want to go the extra mile and do human equipment, material supplies, facilities. However you do it, the bottom line is it breaks down resources by type, and in the image we have personnel, we have material, we have equipment. What does this do for you? It enables you see, in a very visual form, the resources needed on the project. This could include skill level, grade level, required certifications, or other information as needed. Our next output is Project Documents Updates. Activity attributes, assumption log, lessons learned register, these could all be updated as a result of this process. What are we trying to do in the lessons learned register? Well, if there are any pieces of information as far as how certain techniques were not applicable or effective, we want to document that so that people don't repeat our mistakes. And that concludes our review of the Estimate Activity Resources process. So on the exam, I expect you to be tested on the estimating approaches, the BAP, don't forget, bottom-up, analogous, and parametric, and how these are relevant to estimating activity resources. Also, understanding the relevance of the risk register here as an input could be helpful. Understanding that resource-related risks do need to be considered as you're estimating activity resources. Also, the specific EEFs. You see, whenever I see the word resource, I'm very careful to observe those EEFs. You want to observe those EEFs associated with this process. And lastly, understanding alternatives analysis as part of the data analysis carried out. And examples of some of those analyses, and these were talked about in the PMBOK guide on page 322. The construction example and the automotive example will help underscore what exactly I'm talking about. And that concludes our review of Estimate Activity Resources. Let's move on to our next process. control resources. When we talk about controlling resources, let's think about the type of resources that we are actually controlling. This is exclusive to the material resources, the equipment resources, the supplies, the facilities. In summary, control resources is all about those physical resources. In this process, we seek to control those resources to ensure that they get to the people who need them at the right time, and that they are indeed used the right way. Think about it. If there was an abundance of resources, just like air or water, for the most part, do you think people would control the resources to the degree that the PMI is suggesting? Probably not. They might be a bit more careful with the resources, but we need to control resources because we don't have resources to waste. Resources cost money, material, supplies, facilities. Deepak says, when resources become skimpy, and I'm talking about Deepak Chopra, you know him, he said, when resources become skimpy, Human beings don't suddenly cooperate to conserve what's left. They fight to the last scrap for possession of a diminishing resource. Don't we see that in project management? In organizations, there has been lots of big old powwows, lots of fights, almost because of those resources everyone wants the resources that are available for their project. And there are not enough resources to go around in many an organization. In some organizations, it's wait for your turn, and then you get these physical resources. And that's why, in the world of project management, we have to be intentional about our planning when we would need these resources, and how many these resources will actually need to be. After you've got that great plan into action through the estimate activity resources process, this is the big follow-up, folks. This is the big execution. Because you estimated the activity resources, then management gave you the go-ahead and the money, and you acquired the resources, The next question is how well are we spending the resources? So control resources is where we ensure that those physical resources are available as we promised and also making sure that these resources are utilized as we intended. You want to make sure people aren't diverting those resources to other projects or heaven help us outside the firm. (laughs) Haven't you heard of instances where people are carting away company resources to use for their private use? This is where the project manager needs to put a stop to any such thing. You can't take the resources to a different project, you can't take the resources home, and you suddenly can't take them to another organization. The key benefit of controlling resources is to ensure that people get the resources they need at the right time, in the right place and that resources, if they are not being used, are not hoarded. In other words, the project manager should ensure that those resources are released back into the organization if they are no longer needed. Also at the end of the project when all is said and done and you no longer need resources, there is a method to releasing those resources. And I'm talking again about physical. This is all about the physical resources. So let's take a look at this process. Control resources is not a one-time thing. It has to be done in every phase and throughout the project because the moment you stop doing it, things could fall through the cracks. So again, we are considering equipment, Materials, facilities, infrastructure. Definitely not the humans. PMI tells us we should not control humans. That's what this implies. You can see that the humans have been excluded for a reason. Okay, so we want to keep doing this all throughout the project to make sure that those resources are available when they should be available and we also should be involved in updating resource allocation. This information, this information about resource usage, could be extremely helpful in future projects. It could also be helpful in a current project to predict resource usage. So as we go through the project, we want to do control resources continuously. We want to monitor those resource expenditures. If there's shortage of resources, we want to make sure that we get resources that are needed in a timely fashion. We also want to deal with too many resources. So imagine you are in a facility producing a product and you've got so much of a particular resource, it becomes a problem. How are you going to deal with that? We also need to make sure that resources are released at the right time. We need to inform our stakeholders if there are resource issues that will affect them. We also want to influence those factors that can create resource utilization change. Also, we want to manage any changes regarding resources when they occur, if they occur. Let's talk about the inputs to this process. The first one is obviously a plan for governing this process. The project management plan contains the resource management plan and the resource management plan contains guidelines about how to run this process, control resources. The next input is project documents. So think about it, as resource issues crop up, they need to be logged in the issue log so the issue log will be a relevant input to this process. As the project proceeds, you may observe lessons learned regarding physical resource control. That needs to be an input here so that as you get new knowledge, that knowledge is made available and used all throughout the project and in the organization. As part of project documents we have physical resource assignments. What happens when you acquire resources? You assign them, right? So understanding the assignment of those resources gives us the background of resource utilization that is expected and when we are measuring resource usage we want to take a look at that physical resource assignment to know what we intended it's used to look like. Project schedule, also here in project documents, gives us an idea of when the resources are needed. The resource breakdown structure is also a sub-input here. It provides reference documentation in the event of resource issues or replacements. Resource requirements is an output of estimate activity resources and we see it here as a sub input because it enables us identify the needed material equipment supplies facilities and what have you on the project and lastly under project documents we have the risk register because the risk register helps us identify these resource related risks that can impact our project. The next input is work performance data. As usual, we are in the monitoring and controlling process group. So what do you expect? You expect to see a boatload of processes with WPD as inputs, outside of integration, of course. So this is no exception. The work performance data here could be project status regarding the number and the type of resources that have been used. The next input is agreements. If an agreement exists to supply resources in a particular quantity or measure, we need to keep our eye on that agreement. So for any resources that are external to the firm, if there is an agreement in place with a vendor or subcontractor, that agreement needs to be honored. And the way we keep our eye on it is by having this as an input to this process. And the final input here is something we already know. It's organizational process assets. This refers to policies, procedures, guidelines for resource control, also any escalation procedures for resource-related issues, and the lessons learned repository from previous similar projects or even current projects, if this is being done at the speed of thought, as Bill Gates says, like a digital nervous system, if we are getting lessons learned from all over the firm real-time, then we should be able to tap into those lessons learned. So that could be a possible input here. Let's talk about the tools and techniques. The first tool and technique here is called data analysis, and data analysis here refers to reserve analysis looking for alternatives to correct any resource-related variances, to remedy whatever problem we are facing. We also have cost-benefit analysis in which we look for cost-benefit trade-offs when we are considering corrective action for these resources, the physical resources. The next sub-technique under data analysis is performance reviews. Performance reviews enable us take a look at our resource performance over time and understand what the issues are checking for variances, looking for resource utilization versus the planned resource utilization. The next one here under data analysis is trend analysis. And this refers to looking at our variances over a period of time to see if things are getting better or worse. The next tool and technique is problem solving. Now problem solving here refers to solving problems related to physical resources resource shortage resources not being available at the right time be they internal or external resources perhaps your vendor has gone bankrupt perhaps they're the weather related issue perhaps a weather delay has necessitated that you get several more resources on board as it happened to me on a previous project Due to snow, we needed to dig quicker. We needed more backhoes, more people. These things happen. But when you're thinking of solving problems, the PMI give you some guidelines to follow and think about idea because the mnemonic spells ideas. See? I-D-I-A-S-C. Ideas. See? So, it's I, identify the problem, D, define the problem, I, investigate the problem, collect data, A, analyze the problem, find the root cause of the problem, S, solve the problem by choosing a suitable solution, and C, check the solution, ideas, C. let's keep that in mind if you are trying to remember that with a mnemonic. So after we've solved problems, what next? In order to do that, we need to get people on the team on the same page. And the way we do this is by our next technique known as interpersonal and team skills. Interpersonal and team skills, we often refer to that as soft skills, but here they're two big ones, negotiation and influencing. The ability to negotiate with functional heads or external bodies for these changes in resources, the physical resources. Also, influencing could help the project manager solve problems. The more influence the project manager has, the better, because the problems are likely to be solved in a more timely fashion. The final tool and technique here is one we have heard many a time, PMIS, Project Management Information System. The Project Management Information System is A, EEF, Enterprise Environmental Factor, or B, Organizational Process Asset. What do you think? If you chose A, you are correct. The Project Management Information System is considered to be an EEF. Now here we're talking about systems that can be used not just to store information, but to store resource-related information about resource utilization. Let's talk about our outputs from here. You know you're in monitoring and controlling so you expect to get WPI coming out, work performance information. And this WPI has taken into account the WPD, analyzed it, and now this WPI could be things such as how the project work is progressing Comparing resource requirements and resource allocation to resource utilization. The next output is change requests. Of course, you're bound to have change requests, as usual, if you're working in a controlling process. So that could be a possible output. We could also get project management plan updates, the resource management plan, the schedule baseline, the cost baseline for various reasons could be updated here. If you get into a resource crunch, a resource issue, you may need to ask for additional resources, which could lead to additional scope and additional cost. The whole idea about getting new resources on board, getting them trained, getting them equipped to do the job, it's additional scope. It's also additional money, and it could also be an additional length of time to get resources replaced. So there are many different permutations and combinations and scenarios, okay? I've said this quite a few times. Don't get hung up on the sub information. Read it, understand it, and move on. But don't try to cram it. Our next output is project documents updates. So we're talking about things like the assumption log, the issue log, lessons learned register, physical resource assignments, Resource breakdown structure, risk register, and of course the PMI always tells you could include but are not limited to. So get ready to face that and more on your exam. And that concludes our review of the ITTOs. So what should you expect on your test is the question I hear you asking. Well, I'll tell you this is a new process in the sixth edition. It was not there in previous editions. In fact, the idea of controlling resources was so far removed, because we knew that we couldn't control humans, and there was a gap in the controlling section of, at the time, it was called something else, but there was a gap there. And on the exam this time, I would expect you to be tested on the essence of this process, the essence of checking the physical and not the human, the essence of problem solving, the essence of negotiating and bartering and a cost-benefit analysis and an alternatives analysis because you're trying to solve a problem. So it's the logic and the mindset behind what you're doing. Also, the fact that you are considering these physical resource assignments as an input, and you're also considering resource requirements as an input, this is very important and it's pivotal to understanding what exactly you're doing in the control resources process. Because without these things, along with the resource management plan, how on earth would you know what to do? The idea of variance analysis of sorts being carried out is important because without it being explicit, you are comparing what your original resource plans were to the actual to the actual usage what were your plans and what is the usage all that stuff i expect you to be tested somewhat on the exam about it and that concludes our review of control resources if you're studying by process group it's coming down to the wire we're making a lot of progress we haven't got too far to go if you're studying by knowledge area we've got a little bit to go but just know where you are in the matrix. See you in the next process.
2: Control resources is a new process in the PMBOK 6th edition, and controlling resources is in the monitoring and controlling process group, and of course, This is typical of all of our controlling processes, except for a few, which is, hey, what does the data say? Let's analyze what's the difference between what is and what is supposed to be, and let's either say we're on track or let's have a change request as an output. So resources are one of the most important pieces to meeting our schedule and our budget with the level of quality that's necessary to have a deliverable
0: that's fit for use. So this is a a new process because
2: it's a very relevant and very necessary process to have called out from all the other processes that exist in the PMI framework.
0: Let's move on to our next process here. It's out of cost management management. And it's known as Estimate Cost. In Estimate Cost, we could put on two different pairs of glasses. The first pair of glasses is at the WBS work package level. We could say, I'm going to estimate this project at the work package level. I'm not going to the task level. Ain't nobody got time for that. We're going straight to the work package level and we're going to add up all those work packages and boom, we're going to end up getting a final total amount. That's one pair of glasses you could put on. But you could put on another pair of glasses and say, we are going all the way down to the task level or the activity level. So estimating costs could be done at the work package level or it could be done at a more detailed level going into the task level. It's really a thing of choice. In my opinion, the more granular the estimates are, the more accurate your final estimate is likely to be. For example, you've got a bunch of tasks, and you are still not satisfied with how you've estimated them. You could break them down even further. You could break them into subtasks or sub-activities, if you will, or child tasks, whatever configuration you choose to use. The bottom line is you are coming up with estimates for different pieces of the project. And that's what we do in Estimate costs. So which pair of glasses do you wear in your firm? Do you wear the work package lens or do you wear the activity lens. The PMI give us an understanding of this. They say estimate cost is the process of developing an approximation of the cost of resources needed to complete project work. So you're thinking about the human equipment, material supplies, facilities. How much will all these things that we need actually cost for different chunks of the project work? And you can do this using a number of estimating approaches. You can use analogous estimating, parametric estimating, bottom-up estimating, or three-point estimating. It really depends on the unique nature of your project and preferences of the project manager. But I can tell you this, gone are the days of the one-point estimate. People are beginning to realize that we need to evolve beyond the hit-and-miss one-point estimate. People are used to ranges these days, and ranges with experts who know what they're talking about is usually the preferred route. So what do we get from this process, estimate cost? Well, we get a cost estimate. A cost estimate is a deliberate, intentional, thought-out assessment quantitatively of what the likely cost for the resources being used in a particular activity will be. At a point in time, it might seem as though cost will be a particular amount, but remember, as progressive elaboration takes place, your understanding of cost could also evolve So this should not be a one-time cookie-cutter type of thing. Over time, your clarity about cost could become more precise. When we talk about estimating cost, we could also explore options such as, should I use resource A or should I use resource B? Hey, resource A is cheaper. Oh, but resource A isn't the same level of quality as resource B, Or you could make trade-offs such as should we buy or should we build? Should we lease or should we buy? That kind of mindset. You also get into that as you're estimating cost. Cost estimates, of course, are usually in a unit of currency. Dollars, yen, pounds, euro, and what have you. When we talk about estimates, though, they could, in some rare instances, be in resource hours. I actually taught a company that specialized in estimating in resource hours, and their earned value management, get this, was all done using resource hours. So there's room for those accommodations in the area of estimating cost. Cost estimates need to be reviewed and refined, like I said, throughout the project as more and more detail becomes available, more detailed assumptions and awareness of various constraints, then we could hone in and we could get more clarity as far as the actual costs that these activities are likely to be. The PMI give an example of when you are in initiating and you come up with a rough order of magnitude estimate in the range of minus 25% to 75%. And down the road in the project, as you're beginning to know more about the project, your range of accuracy could change from minus 25 to plus 75 to... Minus 5 to plus 10. And in some firms, there are guidelines as to when you can make these refinements. But the bottom line is there should be some sort of allowance for these refinements. And the word rebaseline should not be uncommon to you because as the project proceeds, you may just have to re-baseline as you find more information out or as the customer's priorities change in the world of Agile. Let's talk about the inputs to estimate costs. The first one, boom, project management plan. You saw that come in because it has the cost management plan and it also has the quality management plan. When you think about quality, it costs money cost of quality, the cost of those quality objectives being met needs to be factored in. We also have the scope baseline. Of course we do because that is pretty much what we're trying to assess. So we've got the big old scope baseline and then we've got under that other little items such as the WBS, the WBS dictionary, and the project scope statement. So our scope baseline is definitely one of those sub-inputs that makes sense here. If we take a look at the project documents right off the bat, boom, the project schedule, that should hit you hard, because the schedule, without that, what are you estimating? You need your schedule and the order of activities to be able to estimate. Without your schedule, how will you estimate? A resource fill is working on five activities. They're all taking place at different times. Having the schedule to see that these are not all one-time things, where you could say, oh, all the travel is going to be bunched up as one amount, seeing that in the schedule, it helps. We could also have here, as inputs, the risk register and resource requirements. When you understand the requirements for resources, you will know how much those resources will likely cost. Two usual suspects, EEFs and OPAs, market conditions, that will influence this process. Published commercial information, such as published commercial databases about how much certain skills will cost hourly, that stuff could be helpful here. And also exchange rates and inflation could be helpful. Our final input is organizational process assets and this could refer to standard operating procedures for managing cost, cost estimating templates and any historical information and the lessons learned repository from which we can glean lessons to help us in this process. The tools and techniques need no introduction, expert judgment about the project we're working on, previous similar project experience helps information in the industry that we're working within and cost estimating methods could help us here now really quick because we've talked about this to some degree we've got analogous estimating as one of the techniques parametric estimating as another technique bottom-up estimating as another technique last but not least Three-point estimating could also be used here. Now, I would advise you to read under three-point estimating because you've got two formulas here. You've got the triangular distribution and you've got the beta distribution under three-point. When do you use triangular? When you do not have any prior history about a technology or background information does not exist and the context of the estimates isn't as clear. You use the beta distribution, on the other hand, when there is historical information, when you've been there, done that in the past, then you can use the beta distribution formula. The beta distribution formula, also known as the PERT formula, is pessimistic plus four times most likely plus optimistic divided by six. And we're talking about estimates here. So four times the most likely estimate plus the optimistic estimate, plus the pessimistic estimate, divided by 6. Let's move on to our next tool and technique. It's called data analysis. And you are familiar with alternatives analysis. In this case, we're looking at alternatives for executing the project work. Make versus buy. Build versus lease. And the main reason why you're doing this is to arrive at a favorable decision that, of course, will put you ahead of the curve when it comes to cost. You don't want to waste money. You want to get the best bang for your buck, right? Still under data analysis, we've got reserve analysis, and this is looking at each task and asking, do we have enough buffer in there? What should our contingency reserve look like for this project? or for this particular task. In this case, we're looking at the task level and asking, do we have enough buffers in here? If you're looking at the work package level, obviously it would be at a higher level, but the key word is contingency reserves. We need to address those contingency reserves right away before things begin to happen. Still under data analysis, we have COQ, the cost of quality. I would advise that you look at the COQ image because we could break this down in several ways. But the overarching breakdown is the cost of conformance to quality and the cost of non-conformance to quality in the event that things don't go very well. We need to consider those. And that's why we should allocate some good cost resources to quality. The next tool and technique is project management information system. Spreadsheet, simulation software, any tools that we use to get a better handle on our cost estimates. The next tool and technique is decision making. We could use voting to vote on these estimates. What does the team think? Do you think we did a great job in estimating this or do you have some other idea? Through voting, we get to learn what the team really thinks about those estimates, and it gets them to commit to those estimates. Using voting empowers the team and makes them feel like they own part of the decision. Let's talk about the outputs of estimate cost. Big output is the cost estimates. When we talk about cost estimates, we're being deliberate, we're being quantitative quantitative assessments of the probable cost, says the PMI. So we're given some very specific numbers to say this is what we believe it will cost for this particular task or activity, if you will. The next output is the basis of estimates, BOE. This is supporting documentation for the estimates that you came up with. Some of these supporting documents could be documenting the assumptions and constraints that you used, documenting how the BOE was developed, documenting any identified risks, the range of possible estimates, and how confident you are in those estimates that have been generated. The next output is project documents updates. Project documents that could be updated here include but are not limited to I'm sounding like the pembok guide <sighs> could include but are not limited to assumption log lessons learned register and risk register and that concludes our review of estimate costs now what do I expect on the exam I expect you to know the rhythm of estimate costs understand what you're really trying to achieve What you're doing, preferably, is looking at the schedule and breaking down the schedule cost piece by piece for each activity. That is preferred. In cases where that may not be possible, you may be looking at the work package level, which is higher up in your WBS. Okay? I also expect you to be tested on understanding the dynamics of marketplace conditions, exchange rates and inflation as enterprise environmental factors here. Also, the four estimating approaches, analogous, parametric, three-point, bottom-up, and knowing when to use the different three-point estimating approaches. You got the triangular, when do you use that? You use that when the work is generally unknown. Then you've got the beta or the PERT. You use that when you've got some background information regarding the project at hand. Under data analysis, alternatives analysis, what you're doing there is important, and reserve analysis, how you would carry that out is also a good one to know. The major outputs of the process. I also expect you to be tested on cost estimates, what is in the estimates, and the PMI tell you this. If you read the PMBOK guide and highlight it and hone in on these nuggets, they are nuggets laced all throughout the PMBOK guide. If you can hone in on those unique aha nuggets, it will really help you. You know, for example. Right there in the middle of cost estimates is a line item. This includes but is not limited to direct labor, materials, equipment, services, facilities, information, technology, and special categories such as cost of financing. Did you know that the cost of financing is one of the things you should be thinking about here? Some people don't. It costs money to finance stuff. And those are things you should be thinking about. Inflation. So rather than read the entire chapter <laughs> for you, which you probably fall asleep if I read the pen book guide from A to Z for you, but on a serious note, look out for those nuggets and those rarities and those things that you typically would not pay attention to if you were skimming the book. And that's why I say... <laughs> The Agile Practice Guide is a great book and on page 33 of the Agile Practice Guide we begin to get into the topic of servant leadership. Today we're going to cover everything in the Agile Practice Guide about servant leadership and by the time we're done you're going to be a lot more confident about this topic for your PMP exam. So let's dive straight in. Let's talk about the concept of servant leadership to start with. The typical organization is formed with the C-levels, right at the top, you've got the CEO, then you have the CIOs, CTOs, CFOs, all the Cs. And then you have an executive vice president, a senior vice president, a vice president, an acting vice president, a senior director, a director, a manager, an acting manager, a program manager, a project manager. And then you have the worker bees, the worker bees. Now, when you take a look at this structure, tell me, how does someone all the way at the top in the C's, look at someone all the way down here. I mean, take a look at that power differential. That is a huge jump, several layers. Now, the typical question is, how does someone here look up? And the answer is, it depends. It depends on the leader. If you have a servant leader, the way the people at the lower rungs look up is in admiration. It's with good thoughts, good vibes. But when you think about who is closer to the customer, there's a need to reverse this pyramid because the frontline workers, the worker bees, they are the people who are close to the customer. So Where does the power lie? Does the power lie with people giving command and control? Or does the power lie with people who are interfacing with the customer? And that's why we turn the pyramid upside down. And in the upside down pyramid approach to leadership, we see customers and clients and then frontline workers and then managers and supervisors and then the topmost of executives And that is how leadership should be viewed in order to view servant leadership. Frontline workers are the closest to the customer and are extremely important. Top-down leadership is based on position, power flows from the highest level to the lowest, but the bottom-up approach, power flows from below. People can always reject a directive. Contrary to what people think, leadership and management are two different things. Direct, command and control, that's management. Leadership is understanding that people are first and foremost humans, individuals. People will act in their best intent. People can work without supervision. That's a mindset. Entire organizations espouse the theory Y mindset, and at the same time, entire organizations espouse theory X, draconian rule, carrot and sticks. But that's not what servant leadership is. Think about the fact that there's a zone of acceptance when you give an order as a manager. When you give an order as someone who is using carrots and sticks, people can decide not to act on that directive. When you give an order, people need to understand the order and they need to believe that the order is consistent with the organization's goals and is compatible with their interests and that they're mentally and physically able. So we have a zone of acceptance. Effective leaders ensure directives fall within their subordinate zones of acceptance. Otherwise, resistance and hostility may ensue. I like the example by my mentor, John Maxwell, in his book, The Five Levels of Leadership. He talks about how people will give you just the bare minimum if you are a level one leader, which is the most primitive of all, leading by just authority. At 4.50 p.m., they're tying up their shoelaces, they're putting on their makeup, they're going to the restroom to pee on company time because they will give you the bare minimum by 5 p.m., The car park is empty, they've checked out. Why? Because people know leaders who are level one leaders, leading just by authority. But a servant leader is different. A servant leader is people focused. A servant leader gives accessibility of themselves to their people, of herself to her people. A servant leader understands communication is important. A servant leader understands that they are there in that position to support people working with them. Note, I did not say for them. In the mind of a servant leader, people work with them, not for them. Think about that. Communication. Even way back in time, Julius Caesar kept people up to date with handwritten sheets and posters. How do people know they're doing a good job as a leader when you don't hear criticism over and over again? Go to Glassdoor. Are you thinking about any company and how good their leadership is? Visit Glassdoor, check it out. So access, communication, and support. Very important for servant leadership. So an approach to leadership that recognizes both the top-down and bottom-up views of authority and that effectively addresses the interdependent nature of the leader-follower condition. That is a servant leader as described in one of my favorite leadership books by Curtis and Manning. Servant leader, a leader who stays in touch with the challenges and problems of others. The term servant leadership was coined by Robert Greenleaf in 1970. We're not talking about inmates running a prison. Some think you cannot serve and lead at the same time, but now we know better. Yes, you can. Once people are clear about their destination, the leader's role shifts to one of service. Greenleaf coined the phrase after reading the book, The Journey to the East by Hermann Hesse. Leo, the servant, guides a group of travelers. Leo helps ensure their well-being and survival and success. And the summary is he ends up becoming the leader of the group. How? By serving selflessly. When Leo was taken out of the equation for a bit, they realized there's no way we can survive without this individual. And he ends up becoming the leader of the group by serving selflessly. A servant leader is a person devoted to others or to a cause or creed. A servant leader advances the interests of others, often at personal sacrifice. The essential components are concern, commitment, and care. Servant leadership is a calling to serve. How does one start to serve as a servant leader? Servant leadership starts off with a decision. It starts off with a decision to serve. And that's why, as you read page 33 forward, you realize it is all about you asking the question whether you are in an agile environment, whether you're in a predictive environment, the question is what can I do to help you do your job more effectively? Or better still, in a scrum world, it could be, what can I do to take the impediments out of your way? It could also be, how do I provide love, safety, and belonging to my team so that they can focus on what they really need to in their world of project management? These are ways that leaders think when they are servant leaders. Servant leadership is very unique. It's very unique to the point that when you talk about agile and the servant leader, they go hand in hand. Let's read a few chapters here, a few paragraphs here. It says The following characteristic of servant leadership enabled project leaders to become more agile and facilitate the team's success promoting self awareness, listening, serving those on the team, helping people grow. Coaching versus controlling, promoting safety, creating that safe space, promoting the energy and intelligence of others. If that doesn't enable agile, what does? So it starts off with a decision I will serve. The same way Leo in the story became a servant of the team by leading them through the treacherous terrain as a tour guide. A lowly toll guide, that's how it begins. Deciding, I will serve. So it begins with a feeling of caring about people and wanting to help others. The servant leader is the opposite of the individual motivated by selfish goals. The leader who rules by carrots and sticks, bad theory, X behaviors The greater leader is a servant first. Churchill says, what is the use of living if not to strive for noble causes and to make this model world a better place for those who will live in it after we're gone? Wow. In other words, what is the use of living if we do not become servant leaders to pave the way for those who are coming after us so that it can be better for them? Not about Churchill but about the people coming after him. Profound quote. I like this quote. My job is to reorganize the department on a moment-to-moment schedule based on customer needs. I am a dispenser of resources. And this is from one of my favorite writers, leadership at a higher level, Ken Blanchard, who has been well-known to talk about leadership, servant leadership coined the situational leadership model with Hersey, Paul Hersey. So Ken says, you finally become an adult when you realize that life is about what you give rather than what you get. And that is a servant leader. So what exactly is servant leadership when we talk about the tenets of servant leadership? Let us rapidly cover the tenets of servant leadership. We'll take a look at all ten of them. Let's start off with the very first one. The very first one is listening. You'll serve people better when you make a deep commitment to listening intently to them and understanding what they are saying. That is listening. Now there are various ways you can listen. You can listen with your ears, but you can also listen with your Eyes. In other words, you're listening to what is not being said by observing those nonverbal cues that do not line up with what is being said. That's how you see what is not being said. To improve your listening skills, give people your full attention, take notice of their body language, don't interrupt them before they finish speaking, and give feedback on what they say. In other words, become a supportive listener. We call this a support response versus a shift response. A support response supports the speaker. A shift response takes attention away from the speaker, and the moment something of affinity is spoken, the poor listener jumps on it and makes it centered around them. That is a shift response shifting the attention from the speaker to themselves and that is poor listening so we want to be supportive in our listening the second quality here is empathy servant leaders strive to understand the feelings and emotions of others they also strive to understand people's intentions and perspectives how can we be more empathetic by putting aside our viewpoint temporally valuing others' perspectives, and approaching situations with an open mind. Seek first to understand and then be understood. It's very easy to judge until you know where people are coming from. When you know the story behind that individual who seems to be upset, mad, angry, and perplexed, when you know the story, you have a double take. You realize that there's a reason for their anger. And that is empathy, feeling the emotions of others. Let's move on to the next one. The next one is all about healing. Healing is all about caring about personal well-being of your followers. The characteristic relates to emotional health and wholeness of people. It involves supporting them both physically and mentally. First of all, make sure that your people have knowledge, support, and resources they need to do their jobs effectively and that they have a healthy workplace, healthy environment, and then take steps to help them be happy and engage in their roles. And now you see why we said agile and servant leadership are a great combination. Let's talk about number four. The fourth one is awareness. When we talk about awareness, we're talking about emotions of yourself and others. Know when to push and when to back off. Be tuned into the environment as well, the political landscape and otherwise. Self-awareness is the ability to look at yourself, think deeply about your emotions and behavior, and consider how they affect the people around you and align with your values. You can become more self-aware by knowing your strengths and weaknesses and asking other people for feedback on them. Also, learn to manage your emotions. We talk a lot about emotional intelligence on this exam. Emotional intelligence is understanding your emotions, bridling your emotions, getting them under control and being able to influence the emotions of others. Always consider how your actions and behavior may affect others for good, and for bad. The next one, number five, is persuasion. Servant leaders use persuasion rather than the authority to encourage people to take action. They also aim to build consensus in groups so that everyone supports decisions. There are tools and models that you can use to be more persuasive. You know, in the world of Agile, we talk about Jim Highsmith's decision spectrum. We talk about dot voting. We talk about fist or five and things like that. And the reason is to seek consensus, to give everyone a chance to be heard. There are many tools that you can use to be persuasive without damaging relationships or taking advantage of others. You should also build your expert power when you are perceived as an expert. They are more likely to listen to you when you want to persuade or inspire them. We talk about different power types for this exam, remember? Well, one of them is power of expertise. Let's move on to number six. Number six, conceptualization. Conceptualization is the ability to dream dreams so that you look beyond your present day realities to the bigger picture. If you're a senior leader in your firm, work through and develop a robust organizational strategy, then whatever level you're at, Create mission and vision statements for your team. My team at the Project Leadership Institute, they hear me talk about this all the time. Vision is key, followed by mission. If you have no vision and no mission, how do you know when you've arrived at your goal? How do you know when the strategic objectives of the organization have been met? So have a vision, have a mission. Whatever level you're at, Start right there. You've got a vision to get certified, write it down. What next? How are you going to get to your vision? What are the missions that will get you to your vision? So, when I take a look at conceptualization, I think about vision casting. I think about the ability to cast vision. I think about the ability to cast vision for others to understand what is being said. We all heard it, but you as a servant leader got it best and you do your very best to cast that for others let's move on to the next one the next one is foresight foresight is the ability to predict the future based on the past and the present that is when you can predict what is likely to happen in the future by learning from past experiences the great jack welch he will say go with your gut there are many ways that foresight can be developed. It's identifying what is happening now and understanding the consequences of your decision. Now, to get more technical with it, you could use tools like a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. You could use things like scenario analysis or pest analysis. We have many models for you to look at trends and what could possibly happen We talk about VUCA and PESL and teacup all in the Pembok guide. Let's talk about the next tenet, number eight, and that is stewardship. Stewardship is about taking responsibility for the actions and performance of your team and being accountable for the role team members play in your organization. So think about it like this. As a steward, I'm a custodian, in charge, of the resources entrusted to me. I must care for the people and resources that I am leading. Whether you are a formal leader or not, you have a responsibility for things that happen in your company. So take time to think about your own values as well as those of your organization so that you know and you know what you will stand for and what you want to lead by example by demonstrating the values and behaviors that you want to see in others and have the confidence to stand up to people when they act in a way that isn't aligned with them. We also talk about this in an agile perspective as courage. Stewards need courage to call out what is not in alignment with organizational principles. Number nine, commitment to growth. Here, we're talking about commitment to the growth of people on the team, and it's not for selfish reasons. We're talking about being committed to the growth of others, not because we want them to do a good job on the project, but instead, we develop them because we truly care. To develop your people, make sure you use the training needs assessment. We could call it, Team performance assessment as well, whatever you want to spin it as, but make sure you have an assessment of needs. Understand what their real needs are and give them the skills that they need to get the job done effectively. This is in line with the Agile Manifesto. Also find out what their personal goals are and see if you can give them projects or additional responsibilities that will help them achieve these. I'll never forget my manager when I was at Citigroup. He said, Phil, you want to go to college? I'm going to let you do it. Just don't let the department sink. I was leading the archiving department back then. He had confidence I wouldn't let it sink. So he let me study during the daytime, come back in at night, tidy up after my master's degree training, show up the next day. But he gave me the chance. Why? He was committed to growth. That is a servant leader. Let's talk about the final one. Building community. The last characteristic is to do with building a sense of community, providing a sense of belonging and safety for those on your team. How can you do this? You can do this by providing opportunities for people to interact with one another across the company. Think about social events, lunches, barbecues, design your workplace to encourage people to chat informally. Now I know there's COVID and a lot of folks aren't in the workplace. Yes, I know. But think about other innovative ways that you can make this sense of belonging, sense of community more accentuated in the virtual workspace. Encourage people to take responsibility for their work and remind them that what they do contributes to the success and overall objectives of the organization. Remember, community goes a long way. Remember Maslow's pyramid? Self-actualization is at the top, but it starts with physiological safety, love and belonging. Love and belonging is important. And love and belonging can be experienced by building community. So when you take a look at these 10 tenets, my friends, these 10 servant leader characteristics, these, when practiced, Will bring your team a lot of joy. All of these can be studied a lot more by opening up your Agile practice guide and just going through top of the waves here. Let's read page 34. Servant leaders manage relationships to build communication and coordination within the team and across the organization. When we talk about communication, we're talking about community as well. It's for a reason. What is the difference between a servant leader versus a self-serving leader? Servant leaders see the future, they engage and develop people, they reinvent continuously, they value results and relationships and they embody the values. In other words, servant leader empowers the team. Agile approaches emphasize servant leadership as a way to empower the team facilitate the team's discovery and definition of agile as a servant leader and understand that servant leaders practice and radiate agile. The work order espoused in the agile practice guide is one of purpose first, then people before process. Purpose, why are we doing this? What is the goal? People, encourage a team environment where all succeed, ask for contribution and then think process. But remember, no Agile process is perfect. Cross-functional teams deliver finished value and reflect on the product and process, so it's work in progress. The Agile servant leader, according to the Agile practice guide, promotes self-awareness, involved in listening, serving, helping grow, coaching versus controlling, promotes safety, respect, and trust, and promote the energy and intelligence of others. All of this great stuff, you can find it right here in your Agile Practice Guide, page 33 forward. These are talked about from an Agile lens. Servant leaders manage relationships, they build communication and coordination, and these relationships help leaders navigate the organization to support the team. Servant leaders should think of moving from managing coordination to facilitating collaboration. It's very easy to fall into bad habits when you're in a company that promotes carrots and sticks and theory X, but rather than manage coordination, facilitate people collaborating, self-organizing team. Ask the team what they think. Let them make up their own minds. They are capable. In the world of agile, we often say the team knows what they're doing. And we need to believe that. Encourage team participation, encourage collaboration by interaction in meetings, help everyone to do what they need to do the best way possible and be an impartial bridge builder. Servant leaders remove organizational impediments. Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Remember that. Servant leaders remove any barriers that people experience to doing their jobs. Other servant leader roles are paving the way for others' contribution, educating stakeholders about why and how to be agile, supporting teams through mentoring, encouraging, and support, helping the team with technical project management activities, and celebrating team success. Quick trivia. Servant leader, this is a word coined by who? Originating from the works of Dash, servant leadership is a paradoxical approach to leadership that challenges our traditional beliefs about leadership and influence. What do you think the answer to this is? All right, the answer to this question is Greenleaf, Robert Greenleaf. All right, let's move on. Servant leadership emphasizes that leaders should be aware to the needs of their followers, empower them, and help them develop their full human capacities. Is that true or false? Yes, it is true. Which of the following is consistent with the definition of servant leadership? Okay, now you've got to be careful with A. <laughs> you've got to be careful with B. The best one, leading in ways that serves the greater good of followers, the organization, the community, and society at large. Which novel is the idea of servant leadership based upon? This one, I'm going to ask you to rewind the video and get the answer, because I did mention this. Okay, it's not to the West, (laughs) it's to the East. Okay, remember I told you in the very beginning when Robert Greenleaf put this together in his essays, he coined this as a result of the book, The Journey to the East. And that's why that is the answer. Just a couple more. Which is not one of the 10 characteristics of servant leadership? Okay, you can probably guess the answer is B, it's sympathy. We didn't talk about that. There's a difference between feeling sorry for someone and caring for someone and feeling their emotions. There's a difference. All right, one more. Which terms refers to an individual's ability to be a visionary for an organization providing a clear sense of its goal and direction? Okay, I'm gonna give you a reminder about this one. So remember in our map, we talked about casting a vision. You got it. The answer is conceptualization. All right. So I hope you enjoyed this. I hope it adds some value to you as you prepare for your exam and helps you to really internalize this. For those of you who are already certified, remember we've got the Project Leadership Institute. Go to projectleadershipinstitute.com. That's where we talk about all things leadership. That's where we guide people after they get certified to get to their definite chief aims. Thank you very much for joining me. Don't forget, read up your Agile practice guide and all the very best on the exam and your project management. Bye for now.